Welcome to the Da Vinci Hour, a podcast series that interviews individuals across the field of medicine to help provide an inside look into their experiences and provide insight on how to navigate the journey of becoming a physician. My name is Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and I will be your host. This podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, a medical education company that provides online video courses, outline format books, and clinical case videos for students studying the medical basic sciences. You can check out all that Da Vinci Academy has to offer at www.dviacademy.com. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Da Vinci Hour podcast. I'm very honored to be joined this week by Dr. Richard Brown, plastic and reconstructive surgeon in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. So Dr. Brown, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Super excited. You're in my hometown. You're at Emory. I grew up in Atlanta, so it's really cool to be able to, to do this with you guys. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, maybe give us a little bit of background on, you know, your training background, you know, where you went to school, where you trained for, you know, residency fellowship, and then kind of what your practice is like today. Yeah. So me um, getting into medicine for me was kind of a late decision. So I was uh, 20, 23 when I decided to go to medical school. So actually I'd gone to Syracuse for a couple of years for college and, uh, and I grew up in Atlanta, as I alluded to, and I just like, everyone went to Georgia when I was, you know, when I was in high school. So I was like, I don't want to go to Georgia because I feel like it's just going to be high school all over again. So I hit up Syracuse for a couple of years and it took about, I don't know, five minutes to realize that 200 inches of snow a year was not going to be what I wanted to do. So after my sophomore year, I transferred back to Georgia and, um, I was kind of in speech communications, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Fast forward, um, I just started to get interested in science and medicine because I'd always like been a science-minded guy. And so I started taking um, some science classes and I had previously not been like a really good student. And just, I think I just didn't really have anything to focus on. And um, so I took some science classes and got A's without really working that hard. And I was like, dang, man, okay, maybe I'll do something in medicine, like nursing or PA or something. Um, so in 96, um, the Olympics were in Athens, Georgia, and I transferred to Georgia. I decided to go to medical school. So I kind of just mapped it all out, went home, told my parents like, Hey, listen, I'm not joining the family business. Sorry. <laughs> I want to be a doctor and here's how long it's going to take me. So I ended up applying to med school, got in my first round. Thank goodness. Um, then I went to Chicago and I did med school in Chicago. So I went to the Chicago Medical School, which is a small private school in North Chicago. Um, I did general surgery training in Chicago. I, I completed my general surgery training and kind of in the middle of all that is when I decided to do plastics. And I did a year of research as well at Northwestern and, uh, and then ended up doing plastic surgery in Nebraska. So that's kind of my pedigree. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I've heard, I think it was a video on your, your YouTube channel, which we'll get into in a, you know, down the road here in the podcast, but uh, you, you had a very non-traditional path. And I think there was a cool story you told where I think you, you literally called, I think the admissions officer at the med school you ended up getting into and kind of, I guess, got talked your way into a, in an interview. And then the rest yeah. is history of it. If you could maybe give us a synopsis of that story. I think that's yeah, cool. I'll tell you exactly. Yeah. I'll tell you exactly what happened. So so I had, since it was kind of a non-traditional path, right? Like usually you apply your junior year, you've done all your pre-med work, then you kind of interview your senior year of college, and then you just go to med school, right? If you get in. So because I didn't do that, I took the MCAT in the summer. So I had a year off. Like I was just waiting to like hear from places on interviews. So I was working in an OR at Piedmont hospital in Atlanta. And, um, and I was getting rejection letter after rejection letter. So just to paint this picture for you guys, 
So I had a 2.6 overall GPA when I decided that I wanted to go to medical school. So then I took all my pre-meds and I think I had a 3.8 or a 3.9 and it brought my overall up to just above like about a 3.0. That said, I thought, hey, showing this like trend and this turnaround in my my academics is going to, I'm going to get an interview while I was getting rejected right and left. So I just like one day, and this is just kind of my personality. One day I was like, this is crap. Like I got to, I need to like do something. So I looked at the list of schools I'd applied to and I applied to like, I don't know, dude, like 50 schools, you know, like everyone just trying to get in somewhere. Um, and, uh, and I just started calling every school that I hadn't heard from yet. And so a girl picked up the phone at the Chicago medical school. Um, her name is now I know her name is Danielle, but at the time didn't know her. And I said, Hey, listen, I just want to tell you my story. You know, I decided to go to med school late. This is why my grades are the way they are, but I really crushed my pre-meds and like, I'm really a personable guy. This is my passion. This is what I want to do. I just know if I could get in front of somebody, I could tell my story and I'll win them over. And I just so happened to have got the right person. And she was like, you know what? I'll talk to the director of admissions. Sometimes like I can throw your file on their desk and, you know, they'll do like a phone interview with you. And if they like you, then they'll invite you for an interview. So that's what happened. So she puts my stuff in front of someone, tells them my story. I get a call from the director of admission saying, hey, we'd love to do a little phone interview with you. Um, so we do a little phone interview and I kind of tell them exactly what I just told you. And uh, a week later, I got a letter for an interview in person. <clears throat> so then I go interview at the school and I don't know, within like a few weeks, I got accepted. So just crazy, dude, right? So like the lesson here is, it's really easy to sit back and just allow things to happen. But if you're proactive, you have nothing to lose. All I had to lose was that I, I wasn't going to get in. But if I didn't try and do what I did, that I really might not have gotten in. But because I just kind of like put myself out there a little bit, it all worked out. And so I became, I went on to become really good friends with that girl in the admissions office. And we hung out a lot and drank a little bit during med school together. But dude, that's my story. It was, it was insane. That's an incredibly inspiring story. And it just goes to show you, you know, if you hustle a little bit and put yourself out there, you know, good things can happen. You know, I had a similar story where I only got into one med school and it's because I went to, I did a master's program. It was a little non-traditional like yourself. And uh, I remember they had these admissions people come from med schools and like give talks and things. And at the time I was applying when the person from my med school where I ended up going came and gave a presentation. I said, Hey, like, really like to get an interview here. Like I haven't heard back yet. And they said, and I was similar my first, you know, two years of college, I didn't get the best grades. And then I pulled them up and then I did well in the master's program and I had a pretty good MCAT score. And so I told them my scores and stuff and they're like, I don't have a good explanation. And then thankfully a week later, I heard from them, they gave me an interview and then obviously, you know, the rest is history. So it just goes to show you kind of, again, like yourself, putting yourself out there a little bit can help. Oh yeah, dude, that's a great story. I mean, and I love hearing other people the same way. Cause I don't know about you, but like with my social media presence, I, I get a lot of pre-meds that message me and I truly, truly enjoy trying to inspire them. And I swear so many of them are like, how did you get in? And I'm like, there's no magic. Like it's kind of a conglomeration of everything, right? Like you have to have good grades, but if you don't have great grades and you need to excel somewhere else, and if you're not excelling there, then like, you got to put yourself out there and show your personality. Like you do whatever you can to get in. And sometimes even then you're not successful round one, but like, dude, here we are, me and you, two people who were not like traditional 4.0 students and we got in. 
just from like putting ourselves out there. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm at Emory, which as you know, is a, you know, Big there's time. a lot of, a lot of high achieving people there and you'd be surprised. There's people there that had humble beginnings as well. I, I've met many other co-residents of mine that, you know, got into one or two schools and it was that one or two that gave them a shot that, you know, they ended up, you know, going on and doing, you know, big things. So. Oh yeah. Cool. Dude. One of my, one of my best friends I grew up with in Atlanta, Jonathan Kaufman is a multiple myeloma specialist at Emory. I don't know if you've ever heard his name, but if you that sounds familiar, him, yeah. yeah. His name is Jonathan Kaufman. He's a, he's a med on guy, but he's um, multiple myeloma is his specialty and uh, he's in Emory and he's been there forever. He's, he's a great guy. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So I guess maybe tell us about your current practice. You're, you know, um, your, you know, what type of, how you have it set up, what type of procedures, what do you focus on? Uh, kind of just yeah. run it down for us. Yeah. So, you know, you have two paths when you get out, right? So you're either going to go into private practice or you're going to go work for a hospital. Um, or I suppose you could be hired by a private practice and get salaried. But uh, for me, it was two choices. It was either, and I, like you, I trained at Northwestern for general surgery. And so high power academics, right? Like I knew and I did research for a year. I knew like bench work and academics was not for me. So I'd already decided I'm going into private practice, right? Like I want to run my show. So this was 09 when the housing market was crashing. You couldn't get a loan. Like I didn't know what I was going to do. So I ended up here in Arizona because my wife went to NAU, Northern Arizona here for hygiene, dental hygiene school, had a lot of friends. We came out to visit. I was like, that's a cool place. Like I could totally see myself practicing out there. Right. And I didn't want to go back to Atlanta. So so I ended up coming out here and I ended up joining an old timer who was literally just looking for someone to take care of his patients. And so we sort of drew up this agreement between each other where I would kind of pay him some overhead. And as he helped me get busy, he was planning on retiring. And so you hear a lot of nightmare stories of like attendings eating their young, like they promise all these things. And then you come in and you work hard and you never get it. Well, this guy was serious, like literally a year to the day I got there after I was pretty busy. He stepped out. He was like, I'm out, dude. Take care of my patients. Anything you want here, you can have. It was kind of an old office. And um, it's like, anything you don't want, I'm going to sell. So that's how I got started. And he basically got me doing Mohs procedures and closures. And I was doing breast cancer reconstruction, a lot of that stuff. So, and I'm, I'm 13 years out now. So I'm 13 years out this summer. Holy crap. I'm 13 years out. Wow. <laughs> Mind blowing. Okay. So I feel like I just started yesterday. So I'm 13 <laughs> years out now and um, probably my first eight to 10, I was still doing like 10 or 15 Mohs closures a week. I was kind of building my cosmetic practice with that, driving all over town. So heavy, heavy reconstructive work. I was doing a lot of breast cancer reconstruction, a lot of Mohs, flaps, things like that. And I was doing some tummy tucks and some lipo and some boobs on the side, that kind of stuff. And then somewhere around that like nine to 10 year mark, things just drastically started to change. And then COVID hit. And uh, when COVID hit, I was already kind of thinking about pulling out of the West Valley. I was traveling out to the West Valley in Arizona to do a lot of this reconstructive work. because so it was like a 30 minute drive. And I was like, I feel like I'm stunting the growth of my practice in Scottsdale, but I was always really nervous to financially give it up. So I ended up dumping all of that and coming and just staying here in Arizona on the Scottsdale side. And ever since then, I think my cosmetics has kind of taken over my reconstructive work. I'm probably like 70, 30, 80, 20, sometimes or, um, cosmetic versus reconstructive, but I still love reconstruction. I always keep my hand in it. It's the general surgeon in me that I have. Some, it's kind of near and dear to me. So my practice has been like a really solid mix of cosmetic and reconstructive, which I love. Cause I think I would hate doing 
either one solely. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think one of the things, uh, you know, I, I know a little bit of a plastic surgery that from what I know that it's, it's a very broad field. I mean, you guys literally learn to operate all over the body up, you know, head to toe and the, the wide variety of procedures. Is that, I guess, is that one thing that drew that drew you to the field and yeah, that wide variety? It. Yeah, totally dude. When I was in general surgery, like I was in a heavy level one trauma, my first two or three years at Mount Sinai, excuse me, in Chicago, a lot of knife and gun club stuff, dude. And we would get open bellies that we couldn't close. And so we'd have to pack their bellies, take them to the unit, let them granulate, you know, and then try to go back and do component separations. And so I started to get introduced to plastic surgery because I was seeing all this like abdominal reconstructive work. And I was like, dude, this is badass. Like this stuff is really cool. Right. So that was how I got introduced to plastics and you nailed it, dude. What drew me in was the diversity of the field, like you can operate on kids. So cleft lips, cleft palates, all the cranial all the cranial stuff. You could do adult stuff. You could do reconstructive. You could do cosmetic. You could do this, this broad array of things that you could do microsurgery. Right. And so that's exactly what drew me in, man, which is the diversity of the field and just kind of having to master multiple operations and being able to kind of just be a maverick and do anything. That's what drew me in. That's pretty wild. And I mean, you, you know, you guys also do, you know, some hand surgery too, from what I understand, yeah. you co collaborate with a lot of different other specialties like ortho neurosurgery, ENT. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. You know, we, as radiologists, we read a lot of the films for those. And then, uh, in IR, which is cool, which also kind of what drew me to that field was that we, you know, do cases all over the body as well. Um, but we, you know, I think it's interesting collaborations you can have with other fields that also kind of uh, make these fields interesting as well. I think I know, dude, like I always say all the time, I'm like, I miss residency. Like I miss operating with like all these other different people when it's just you in the OR it's fun. And like, you have your OR crew, but like when neurosurgery was in and we were doing like a kid's craniosynostosis case or whatever it is, like, it was so fun, like collabing with all those guys, a little side note. Um, cause you're going into IR, you said, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think Andy Nguyen, who I interviewed, he's at MCG. He's a third year med student. I was on his, um, he came out and interviewed me. He asked me like what I would do if I wasn't a surgeon. And it was, IR was my answer. Cause I just, the surgery, the procedures are so cool. There's so much neat stuff you can do today. And I just like that hands-on stuff. Like you're going to be in a really cool field. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's a very innovative field. And uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there and, and, um, you know, all the different gadgets and new, new techniques and everything. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, but I guess back, back to your practice, um, you know, what's your, what's your split now, like between surgery clinic, do you do any inpatient work? Do you, do you cover any ERs or call or anything like that? Yeah. You know, believe it or not, I have not taken one day of call since I stepped foot in this town. That's unreal. Um, wow. So yeah. I'll <laughs> tell you what my practice looks like. So clinic a couple of days a week, got to see patients. Right. And, uh, I say this jokingly for all of you out there who are going to see this, but surgeons joke or my joke is that clinic is like the penalty box for us. <laughs> like we don't like to be here. We like to be cutting, but this is where you talk to people and I'm good at it. So a couple of days of clinic a week, um, I operate typically three days a week. Um, sometimes those days aren't full, you know, from beginning to end. Yeah. So I don't do any inpatient stuff. It was a really weird dynamic when I came to town. So I was expecting fully to take call. And what happened was here, it's weird, man. They've got like, they have like six surgeons that are plastic surgeons that are on the call list at the trauma hospitals and the ER attendings are not allowed to call off of the schedule. Right. So I had to like get into the lineup 
to just get in to be on the schedule, but someone had to drop out for me to get in. And there were other people ahead of me. So that's why I started heavily getting into Mo's stuff. Cause I was like, you know what? If I'm not sewing up lax at nighttime and doing jaw fractures, like I got to make money. So I started doing Mo's closures. And it's really funny, like three or four years into doing all that. And I was like super busy and just like, you can rack it up doing Mo's closures. It pays well. I got a call from the hospital, like, Hey, we were wondering if you wanted to like jump into the call pool. And I was like, uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm making money. I have twins that were just born. Like I had twins that were born when I got out. I'm like, my kids are three now. Like I'm spending time with them. I'm making money doing most closures. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm like, I don't want to be up sewing up bases in the middle of the night. So dude, I did not take one day of call since I have been out in practice, which is insane. That's awesome. Kudos for you. That's, that's kind of the dream right there. <laughs> totally. Right. Like when I tell people that they're like, you didn't take any call. I'm like, no, man, it just didn't work out. They didn't want me. That's wild. Cause I imagine there's some plastic surgeons, like, especially if they're covering like flaps or a trauma center, like they're probably take a lot of call. I would imagine. Oh yeah, dude. I mean, there's like, there's a group in town, a micro group that dominates all that. Right. So like they had spread their wings. Like you couldn't, you couldn't really get your hands in on the micro unless you worked with those guys. But, um, you know, it's a blessing in disguise, right? Like I could have been up all night sewing up lacerations, but instead I was getting skills, learning how to move tissue around in the face and closing big holes and doing all that without having to be up all night. So it just, it worked out for me, you know, like I haven't had to take call and I, and I don't take any call now, but like I take my own call for my patients. Sure. And then there's a good group of us in town that sort of cover for each other. So I got like 10 really cool plastic surgeons in town that I could be like, Hey man, I'm going to be gone next week. Like, can you cover me first call or second call? Yeah, no problem. So we have a group of us that do that, but yeah, no hospital call. And I hardly see inpatients anymore. Very cool. From what I understand, you know, as far as your operating setup, because I know some surgeons and I know some IRs have to do this as well, where if you have want privileges at like a hospital, even if it's like a community hospital, a lot of times you have to, you know, that's part of the deal is you've got to take call there and cover the ER for, you know, a certain amount of times a month. Do you do any of that or do you operate more at like outpatient centers you have, or do you have an OR in your office even? Yeah, no, I do everything in an outpatient surgery center, but, um, and then one of them is at the hospital, you know, it's really weird here. They learned a long time ago because they tried to do this. They tried to tell us all if we didn't take call that, that, that we couldn't have privileges. Well, no one would take call. So they were like, okay, we got to get rid of that rule. <laughs> Whoever <laughs> wants to take call can take call. And if you want to have privileges, you can have privileges, but it, they tried to do that. And it just doesn't work, right? Like there's always youngsters coming in that want to take call. And mm -hmm. I would have, right? Like I would have been totally game. Um, but nah, I haven't, I haven't had that problem. So I do mostly everything I do is outpatient surgery centers. But like every now and then I'll have a huge abdominal hernia, right? Like a 20 centimeter defect. And we have to do a component separation and I need someone to take down the bowel. Like, even though I'm trained to do all that, I don't have privileges at the hospital to do general surgery. So I'll collab with guys and do that stuff in the hospital, which is kind of fun. That is cool. That's cool that you can kind of use your general surgery training and then also have, you know, people collaborate with you as well. That's Dude, pretty it's cool. very humbling when like, um, like I'll have a patient for a tummy tuck that's got an umbilical hernia and I'm going to the hospital to do it. And I'm like, can I fix the hernia? They're like, no, you don't have privileges. I'm like, I, I can't fix the hernia. They're like, no, you need to have general surgery come in. Like, it's so annoying. Right. I'm like, I'm double boarded. I kept up my boards. Like I'm a plastic surgeon. We do abdominal wall reconstruction and I can't fix an umbilical hernia. Like they won't let me use mesh. If it's a simple repair, like I could do that. They don't know, but if it needs mesh, they're like, nope, you can't do it. Like you got to have a general surgeon in there. It's really weird. 
yeah, some of these politics in medicine or the, the politics of the like hospital systems is just kind of interesting, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for all, for all you guys who are coming out now, I would say that's probably the hardest part of what you're going to deal with is just all the hospital politics. We're going to take a quick break to let you know the Da Vinci Hour podcast is brought to you by Da Vinci Academy, which provides online video courses for the medical basic sciences. These courses are taught using a variety of teaching methods, including bullet point outlines, diagrams, radiology images, and chalk talks to explain the fundamental concepts. We then teach the application of those concepts to numerous clinical pearls that are frequently tested on medical school exams and the USMLE. Our video courses are available on our website, dviacademy.com, as monthly subscriptions starting at $9.99 per month. Each video course has a corresponding outline format textbook as well. You can find the link to our website in the description below. Also, be sure to use the discount code TDH20 to receive 20% off any of our video courses. All right, now back to the podcast. Of the broad field of plastic surgery, what what are kind of the main, you, you mentioned the, the breakdown of cosmetic versus uh, yeah. reconstructive. Within those silos, like what, what areas do you, potential or usually focus on and what are kind of your favorite areas to do to work on? Yeah. So I live below the neck. Now I gave up, um, facial cosmetics, I think like two or three years ago, cause it just bored me. I don't enjoy it. Um, and so I'm all breast and body. So I do everything below the neck. So, um, from the cosmetic standpoint, it's breast augmentations, breast augmentations and breast lifts, tummy tucks, lipo from the cosmetic side, from the reconstructive side, breast cancer, reconstruction, everything that involves that. I do some local flaps. I don't do any microvascular stuff, um, trained in all that, but just, you know, micro is just a, a whole different world. Um, and you really have to have that all set up. So that's, I pretty much live bo- below the neck and I'm a breast and body specialist. Cool. Cool. I'm curious, you know, and forgive me, I, I have very limited knowledge of plastic surgery, but for like breast augmentation, I've seen different, like, you know, shows on TV and stuff where guys go through the, you know, uh, belly button or they'll go, uh, they have different techniques for like, like nipple sparing and things. Is there, what's your kind of like go to, or do you use a variety of techniques for that? Yeah. So, I mean, no, nah, it's pretty straightforward. So I happen, this is like my stress ball. I, I like have this on my table. You don't even know I'm like sitting here squeezing it while we're talking. Um, so I get this little, this big thing in through like a three or four centimeter incision oh, wow. in the inframammary fold. So usually the most common way to do it is an inframammary fold incision. You can do a periareolar incision where you can dissect down to the muscle, or some people will do transaxillary where you go through the armpit. The belly button thing is gone. You can't really do that anymore. The companies won't back the implants warranty wise because it's just too traumatic. So the most common way to do it is just make a little incision in the breast crease. We use a lighter retractor and get underneath the pectoralis muscle and just kind of make a pocket and, and then try different size implants. Interesting. Cool. Cool. And then, so easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, only eight years of training to do it. Right? I know day one, I was like, wait, where's the, where's the muscle today? I'm like, oh yeah, what's going on? Oh yeah, there it is. Like, it's like, so it's so different now. It's unreal. That's so cool. I'm hoping to get to that point. It's at one point. <laughs> it happens. Once you get some miles on, on the, on the wheels, you'll be good. Nice. Nice. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe talk me through, you know, you mentioned clinics, part of the job, maybe walk me through like your consultation process. Like how do you consult a patient? Like yeah. what, and then, and then kind of going into probably the more fun part for you. What, how do you plan the surgery? Like, do you use imaging? Do you use like computer? I've seen some of these computer software programs that like help plan surgeries kind of maybe walk us through your process of that. Yeah. So, you know, when a person comes in, um, whether it's cosmetic or reconstructive, 
um, you know, I, I lead the consultation with just, you know, what are you looking to change? What do you, what do you, what do you not like? What do you like? Um, what's your vision of exactly what you want to do? And actually I'm a little bit different than most plastic surgeons in that I am very health and wellness focused. So I'm starting a wellness center to help patients kind of change their lifestyle, lose weight, get in shape in order to have a good result with cosmetic surgery. So I kind of lead my consults with that. Like, where are you in your wellness journey? Are you trying to lose weight? Are you not trying to lose weight? Are you happy? Once I sort of get a sense of where they are with that, then we hone in on what their procedures are that they want. And so once we hone in on the procedures that they're looking to do, I spend probably about an hour, um, more than most people. I really sit there and try to like really dissect the case, tell them, tell them what we're going to do, tell them how long it's going to be, what the recovery is like. I just kind of go over everything from A to Z myself with them. So that's what the consultation is like. And some people, you know, they come in and they're like, I want to do my arms and I want to do my thighs and I want my boobs and I want my tummy. And can you just grab me from here and pull everything tight? And like, we could do all that in one day. And I'm like, you know, we can't do all that in one day. Like, what are like the top things that bother you? We're going to do a couple of different stages. Let's do the things that bother you first. So, so that's how I guide my consultations. I really, really do try to spend a lot of time educating people when it comes to simulators, I don't do that. And I'll tell you why I'm not a huge fan of that. A lot of people are like with the breast imaging things to show people what size they're going to be. And I think with nasal surgery, some people do that. I think it gives people a false sense of what's possible sometimes. And so then they hold you to the picture that you show them. So I use a little bit of a different technique. I try to have people bring in vision board photos and I guide them through selecting. So for breast surgery, I'll say, Hey, listen, I want you to go to this website. There's tons of before and afters. I want you to go try to find a woman that looks the way you look now. And then show me some afters that you like, that you would want to look like. Let's sort of get in the mindset of we're going for a look. We're not going for a cup size. We're not going for a specific implant size. We're trying to achieve a look. And so I'll have them bring these pictures to me, which helps me number one, get inside of their mind to know exactly what they're looking to be like. And it also helps me manage their expectations, right? Do you have unrealistic expectations? Or are you kind of on the money with your photos that you brought me? And we hone in on one. And when I go to surgery, I just tell them, look, this is the size we're going for. This is your favorite picture. This is the one I'm bringing in the OR and I'm going to try different implants until we get there. So I feel like the imaging systems can give a patient a false sense of reality. Sometimes it's too perfect. And then when they come in post-operatively, they're like, I don't, I don't look like that, but you're like, you look amazing. And they're like, but I don't look like the picture you showed me. So it can create some turmoil. So for me in my practice, it just doesn't work for me to do imaging, but I do try to work with the patient on showing me pictures of what they think they want to look like. And, and I don't do that as much with tummy tucks and things like that. Cause tummy tucks are what they are, right? Like you take a bunch of skin out, you tighten up the muscles, you contour them with breasts, you're working on sizes. So pictures help but with the other stuff. It's not so helpful to look at photos. So that's how I do it. Interesting. You know, I, I had recently on the podcast, uh, Dr. Todd H Hanna, who's a, I don't know if you know him at all. He's an oral maxillofacial surgeon, but he does a lot mm -hmm. of aesthetic and draw surgery. He's, he's fairly big on Instagram too. Um, and I asked him kind of a similar question. He, he said he doesn't use a lot of the planning either. He actually hand draws a lot of things out. It kind of works similar to how you do like works with the patient. What's their expectations? What do they want? So it's kind of interesting to hear kind of different people's processes for doing that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, dude, it's weird. I um, I remember when I thought I was going to be a rhinoplasty surgeon, I spent some time in San Francisco with a guy 
And he was like, dude, you got to learn how to do the imaging, the pad and drawing and doing all this stuff. And I just remember him being like, this is super important. And I don't know, maybe in the rhinoplasty world it is, but it just like, it never grabbed me. Right. Like I just always felt it always felt uncomfortable to me. Like I'm trying to show a person what they're going to be like when what you're seeing on the screen doesn't take into account your tissue quality, how stretchy it is, what's going to happen when I put the implant in you, it's not going to look. So it's never like matched up for me. Interesting. Yeah, no, I imagine it's, it's much more complicated than trying to fit someone else's picture. If you will, it's not the same patient. So that, that Dude, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. The hardest part of what I do is up here. Yeah. <laughs> like work, working with their minds. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I had a mentor in medical school who was a spine surgeon. So it's, you know, different patient population, but kind of similar where a lot, he talked a lot about how clinic was actually really important, even though it was his least favorite part of it, or, you know, yeah. he obviously loved operating much more, but um, he enjoyed clinic from the sense that it was a lot of it was managing patients' expectations, you know, working with patients and really illustrating what we can do, what we can't do. And, that, and so I, I imagine in plastic surgery, there's a lot of that as well as managing patients' expectations, understanding, making them understand the limitations of the procedure and things like that. hundred percent. Totally feel the same way. Yeah. It's and I, and I got, when I said penalty box, that's why I kind of jokingly said, but I'm good at talking to people. So man, I agree with what you said hundred percent. Like it is a great opportunity to manage your expectations. Cause I'll tell you, um, all, all of the success that you, let me spin that a different way. A patient being happy post-operatively can all be managed preoperatively. So if you educate them properly, you really make them understand what's realistic and what's not realistic for their body. If they all go in kind of knowing exactly what's possible versus what's not possible, the likelihood of them being unhappy afterwards is not the doctors that just kind of zip in and zip out and they're trying to see as many as they can in a day. And they never have that conversation. It's no wonder people come back and they're like, Oh, I'm too big. I'm too small. But cause you didn't spend time really educating the patient and just kind of understanding what was right for them. So I, I totally agree with that statement. hundred percent. Awesome. You know, what, you don't take any call. What is your schedule? Like, do you, you know, how many hours do you work? Like, you know, these yeah. are things, you know, a lot of the med students may be listening or even some of the residents thinking about doing plastics would want to know what, what life is like in pl private practice, plastic surgery. Yeah. So it's changed over the course of 13 years, obviously. Um, in the beginning, I humped it. I was operating, I was up at you know, five in the morning, heading out to hospitals, operating till six or seven at night. So in the beginning for many, many years, I, I, I ground, I put my ground really hard, right? Just grinding, grinding, grinding over the years, as your as my cosmetic practice has sort of evolved, um, it's evolved to me to probably, I would say a 40 hour work week. Sometimes it's 45 or 50, sometimes it's 30 or 35, depending on how busy I am. But my basic day is, um, I'm huge into health and fitness. I'm a big CrossFit guy. I'm sure you love seeing all those injuries. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I get up usually between four and five every day, try to get in a workout, whether it's CrossFit or I'll go hike up the mountain here in Arizona and hike back. Um, if it's a clinic day, I'm in clinic by nine and I'm using clinic until about five, four 30 or five. Um, if it's a surgery day, surgery starts at seven 30, depending on how many cases I have, I could be done by noon or one. Sometimes I'm operating until five, but I rarely, rarely operate past five o'clock. Now I try to schedule my day that way. I have 12 year old boys who are twins. So if there's one thing that I will tell people for plastic surgery and being in private practice, you get to kind of make you get to make your bed, right? Like you get to kind of plan it out. That being said, 
I had to work my ass off for many, many years to get to the point where I could pull back and not have to hump it so hard. So I think that for anyone getting out who's thinking about doing what I'm doing, um, you have to realize that it doesn't matter what specialty you are. We're not all just rich. Like you don't just start raking in hundred dollar bills, like right away. It just doesn't happen that way. You got to love what you do and you got to be willing to grind to get there. And then eventually you map out your lifestyle and you just live it. So that's kind of where I am now as I'm in this place where I'm happy. I get to make my hours, but now I've got all these new companies I want to start like the wellness center. So things are getting a little stressful again, but it's pretty chill. Like I have, I have a pretty good life. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, as trainees, as you know, we spend all this time in these academic centers and, you know, yeah. if you want to, if you want to go out, I imagine that can be daunting, you know, going from that where, you know, your referral base is, I mean, is basically your attendings referral base. And then if you, yeah. I guess if you stayed on staff, you have that referral base built in. I'm always curious, like, how did you get started? How did you, you know, you talked about those like most surgery reconstructions and things. Yeah. How did you build up your referral base? How did you get people to know who you are that like, Hey, I'm here in town. I offer these, you know, procedures and services. Like, Maybe walk us through like how you got started as a fresh out of training uh, private yeah. practice guy. Well, so as I described, my partner kind of started to get me reconstructive work. So that helped, right? So I started, mm -hmm. you know, when, once he introduced me to the Mohs surgeon, I went to her office and I was like, I'm, I'm got you. Like you send me as much as you want and I will take care of you, right? So the first thing we always learn this in med school, affable, available, and able. So in the beginning, I made myself available. I didn't say no to hardly anything. I tried to go meet different doctors that I could get referrals from someone in honor health at the honor health um, system. That's our health, one of our healthcare systems here. You know, one of the, one of the women who worked in, in the um, office took me around and introduced me to general surgeons to try to get breast cancer reconstruction. So a lot of the beginning of my practice was just trying to be available do good work. I didn't spend hardly any money in marketing. I had a website, um, but I didn't advertise or do any of that stuff. And I think what happens is slowly, but surely people start to hear about your work. Like, Oh, I had mine done by Dr. Brown. Look at how good this looks. And then I would get a cosmetic case here and there and just try to do a really good job on that case. And slowly, but surely, and we haven't even talked about social media yet, but slowly, but surely what, what starts to happen is People are happy with the work you're doing. You're treating them with kindness. You're giving them good results. And I always treat the other doctors that refer to me with kindness. And who doesn't want to work with people like that, right? So I would just try to like woo all these people and just be nice and not be like that jerk surgeon, like personality that we all kind of have hanging over our head. I tried to be the opposite guy. I tried to be the yes guy. And I just tried to be available for people to help whenever they needed me. And so I think over the years, it's just largely become a referral based thing because people just know who I am in town now. That's awesome. You know, I think people, you know, they see people like you in private practice successful, doing well, and you, know, you have recognition and they don't realize necessarily all the work that, you know, like you said, that went into that, you know, it's not like you set up shop and then all the business comes to you. I think that's refreshing to hear that, like, you know, um, it's not as easy as it looks or, you know, it's not like it all falls into place right away, which is, you know, pretty cool. I mean, like anything else in life, you gotta, you gotta work for it. <laughs> yeah, man. Like, you know, you know, if you follow me on social or see any of my stuff, I'm, I'm really into motivational content. And I like to talk about this all the time. And I tell a lot of the pre-meds that message me a lot, this same thing. I tell people you have to embrace failure. If you're not willing to fall flat on your face, 
you're never going to succeed. I mean, you, you will probably agree that all of the good lessons that you learn in life come from failure. Like I tell my kids, like, I want you to fail. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I want you to not succeed sometimes because you're going to learn how to push through that and change yourself or change what you're doing to become better. So I think your point is so valid that I think people need to realize that while you see on social media, all the great posts that I put up and all the fun that I'm having, you don't see the multiple years of up late at night, fixing complications because they happen to everybody, you know, being there for the doctors who need you late at night, being there for patients who have a problem at 10 PM and they need to talk to you on the phone, you know, not getting the case that you wanted to get because they decided to go to another doctor. Like no one sees that stuff. So everything that I have done to get to where I am today, 100% has not been a straight line. It's been a broken line and imperfect. That's amazing. I think, you know, it's interesting you bring up the topic of failure. You know, I, I've, you know, like many people I've had, you know, successes and also many failures along the way. And I learned, I think a lot more from my failures than I do because from your success, because your success, you think, oh, it worked. You kind of move on. I mean, obviously you reflect on anything, but I think failure, if you do it right, makes you really reflect on like, you know, what went wrong? How can I change this? I think it's like kind of a moment for introspection, if you will. Yeah, dude. I, I, I tell people, um, the line I give them a lot is it's not whether you fail, it's what you do after you fail that defines who you are. Right. So are you the kind of person that's going to roll over and quit or are you going to keep grinding until you figure it out? You know, that's like awesome. that's, that's like what defines you. I feel like is what you do after failure. That's awesome. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, I, I think it's, it's easy to just succeed all the time. I think, I think yeah. that's, you know, when you fail, that really shows kind of who you really are, what your character is. I think that's an excellent point you make. Yeah, no question. I, I love all this motivational stuff. Like <laughs> I could, I could talk about this stuff all the time. Cause I'm, I'm into a lot of that stuff on social media too. Like the whole mindset stuff. And I, I love all that because it's, it's hugely important, right? Like today in this day and age, I feel like there's a population out there of youngsters and middle-aged people who just kind of expect it to happen. Right. Like, cause mm -hmm. maybe their parents, you know, served it up to them their whole lives. And so now when they get out there to work, it's like, oh, hey, I worked hard for a month and had some results. Like, do I get a raise now? You know, it doesn't work that way. Like you got to grind, like you mm -hmm. have to grind. Everyone yeah. has to grind. No. And I think you see it in residency. I'm sure you saw this, you know, in such a demanding field of surgery and plastic where, you know, it's hard for everybody. Like very, there's no LeBron James's of medicine. No. Like no one comes in knowing at all. No. Like, you know what I mean? And so like, yeah everybody struggles. I think some people are more vocal about it, but it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, people that are really, really smart that came from these very prestigious places and things. And they're right there with you kind of just like you said, trying to figure it out. <laughs> you know, and what's so funny is like, what I love is um, like, you're looking at the guy or the girl next to you going, damn, I wish I could be like you, like you're killing it. And they're looking at you going, damn, I wish I could be like him. He's killing it. Like everyone, you don't realize like everyone is thinking the same thing, right? Like we're all comparing ourselves to each other. Meanwhile, the person that visually seems like they're killing it. You're like, dude, you're killing it. And then you get to know him like, dude, I'm grinding, man. Like I'm telling you, I'm having such a hard time. Like all these people in my office are leaving. And I mean, that's just, that's the reality of life is that it's easy to look around and think that everyone's crushing it. Meanwhile, I think everyone's like taking it hard and just kind of like getting through it. Just like we all do the same thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, 
segueing a little bit here, I, I wanted to get into, you know, you've built this huge following on social media, you know, uh, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, like we were talking about before, maybe walk us through how you got started doing that. And then how that's like one helped grow your practice. And then any kind of other interesting professional opportunities that's, that's, uh, you've seen as a result of that. Yeah. So social media is interesting, right? Like it can be good. It could be bad. Um, I've stayed off of medical TikTok. I mean, medical Twitter, because, oh my God, it is toxic. Like I never really got into Twitter and then I kind of started like fumbling around in there and I was like, wow, cruel people in here. So I'm exiting from there. So, <laughs> so I told you before we started the podcast, um, I think I had a YouTube channel in like 2012, but didn't really do much with it. Um, then like several years later, started putting some educational content up, but still wasn't giving YouTube the love that it probably deserved. And then the pandemic hit right before the pandemic. I think I started making a lot of educational content. And at the same time, I think in 2016, I had an Instagram and uh, I was having someone in my office kind of do it. And it was just like, she was putting up like all these like quotes and stuff, like all, all the fluffy quotes, like pretty quotes. And I was, I had to have back surgery. I had an L4, L5 microdiscectomy. And so I was laid up and I was like, man, everyone's killing it. Like what's wrong? My channel sucks. Like I'm looking at all these other people. They got all these followers. Like, so I started looking at people's content. And so I told the girl in my office, I was like, I'm taking over. <laughs> I started deleting like posts and I started mimicking what other people were doing. Just kind of trying to like show stuff, show results, things like that. And slowly, but surely like I started to get Instagram followers. Now Instagram is tough because for my specialty, I was showing a lot of graphic content on my stories and stuff. And so I kind of like, you're sort of shadow banned in that way. You're not recommended like everyone else, but what that evolved into for Instagram for me is I just started getting into like, okay, I'm going to show people my kids and talk about life. I'm going to show people an educational post about surgery. I'm going to show people a motivational piece on my stories. So I started sort of getting this overall mentality for social media of educate entertain and inspire. So those are like my three kind of pillars. Whenever I'm trying to post, it's educate, entertain, or, in, or inspire. And education or entertainment could be some of the stupid pimple popping stuff you see or the jokes with me and Dr. Yoon. It could be that kind of stuff. Like people want to be entertained. So Instagram kind of started to grow. And then when the pandemic hit, I was getting a little fed up with Instagram because I was putting all of this energy into educating people, but I really wasn't growing as much as I thought I should. Um, and so Gary V was like, you know, who Gary V is. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah so Gary's <laughs> like, you gotta get on TikTok. You gotta get on TikTok. Like there's no other place you can get a million views, like in a minute. Like, so I was like, all right, let me check out this TikTok thing. So I jump on TikTok during the pandemic and I'm like, I do not want to dance. I'm like, I got rhythm. I can dance, but like, is this what I have to do? Long story short, I start to get a bunch of followers there and I put up a bunch of pre, I told my story about like having a bad GPA and then getting into med school and that went viral. And that led me to getting a ton of pre-meds messaging me from TikTok about med school. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to be like the pre-med guy on TikTok and I'll just help all these people out. And then um, I got verified around two or 300,000 followers. Like my page just kind of kept growing. I kept getting more views and just things were happening because I was just being authentic and real and just like, just teaching people about my specialty. So then I caught wind that, Hey, we could show surgery. Cause I was like, I have a, I have a contact at TikTok. And I'm like, Hey man, can I show surgery? He's like, there's no nudity. It's not against the guidelines. Like go for it. So I started showing tummy tuck flaps and tightening the muscles and I was getting like 10 million views, 5 million views. And I was just having fun, just like showing surgery and educating. 
So that that's how my page grew, right? So TikTok just blew up for me because I was able to show people, I was bringing people inside the OR and giving them point of view that they would never get to see. Well, then they cut off graphic content. So that made TikTok kind of hard. So, but then YouTube started to grow with shorts coming in, TikTok grew, Instagram grew. And so now I kind of have this audience of people and, and like I alluded to before, my goal is just to educate, entertain, and inspire. And that's all I'm trying to do. And I will say this, for me, social media has been amazing because I stay away from controversy. I don't fight with people. I try not to put up controversial stuff and fight with people. I'm just trying to educate. But when people come to see me for consultation, almost all of them have found me on social media now. And when they come in to see me, they're like, oh my God, I, I feel like I already know you. Like I follow you, I watch you, I love your content. So for me, social media has been amazing because I feel like they've gotten to interview me before I've shown, before they even show up and they've already decided like, Hey, this guy seems real and authentic. And like, I want to go to him. And so that's what I've loved about social media. And it's, it's been a, a quite a journey and I enjoy making content and a lot of people don't, but I enjoy making content. That's awesome. No, I can tell from, you know, I follow your, your Instagram page and your, in your YouTube channel, and I can tell you have a lot of fun doing it. you post a lot of, you know, interesting and, and, you know, really entertaining and funny, uh, clips and videos and things. I'm curious, um, when you were growing this following, did you find that it was easy? Like you said, you, you were on TikTok. Did, were you able to just kind of segue people over to that or, or how, how did you, how did you kind of, Hey, yeah. let people know like, Hey, I'm on YouTube now, like check this out. Or was it more kind of organic than that? Yeah. So it's funny you say that because one of my draws to TikTok was you could link your Instagram and your profile. So I was like, oh man, if you can grow on TikTok, like maybe I could like pull people over to my Instagram. So in the beginning, I want to say I probably did pick up three or four or 5,000 followers. Once my TikTok started to grow, I picked them up, they crossed over, but I didn't see the crossover. Like I thought I would. Cause I think a lot of the people on TikTok just don't do Instagram like that mm -hmm. age group, you know, now there's all kinds of ages on there, but for sure, I got a lot of crossover when it came to YouTube. I don't know, man. I don't know that I've seen a huge crossover. I, I can't tell, right. Cause you can't see where people come from on YouTube, but I think what happened was um, on YouTube, a lot of people, because my shorts started to do well after a little while, they started seeing some of the old surgery content that I had put up and they were like, Oh man, this is really cool. Like, we really like you showing this stuff. So I think that happened like as the short form videos, because I think to be honest with you, short form video is king right now. Everyone is trying to mimic TikTok. Instagram is everyone. Facebook now has reels, shorts on YouTube. Like everyone's starting to realize that the attention span of the viewer now is like that, that big. <laughs> and so short form is where it's at right? Um, long form is still great, but I think short form is what reels people in. So, you know, I think I have now that I have all channels kind of are on full force. I've gotten a lot of crossover, but I didn't get as much crossover from TikTok to Instagram as I thought I would, which was kind of weird. Interesting. Different crowds though, right? Like different audiences. Yeah. And I think that's why I think people say to post on multiple platforms because you probably touch different audiences. Um, I'm curious from, you know, you talk a lot about education who's like your target audience? Is it like patients, students, maybe all of the above? Like what, how do you, what do you think about when you put something together that's like yeah. educational? So it's any and everybody. So sometimes I'll educate about med school. Sometimes I'll educate about plastic surgery. And this is, this is why I love that I'm general surgery trained. I feel like being general surgery trained 
all surgical things are open to me. Like I can talk about the colon, the appendix, the liver. I can talk about boob jobs and tummy tucks and lipos. So when I put up a, a post, I don't know that I'm necessarily trying to target a specific audience. I am just trying to put education out there, right? So like I do this thing, I do this segment every Sunday on Instagram called Quickie with Dr. Ricky. I think I've seen and, that, yeah. <laughs> and so I just, I just started doing that recently. And yesterday I went off on board certification on what it means, why it's important, how you determine if your surgeon is board certified or not. And so I don't have a target audience, except that I just want all people to understand here's how you're, here's how you should, you'd be safe in surgery, choosing a surgeon. So I don't really target specific people. I just think whenever I put content up, something inspires me and I see it and I'm like, Ooh, that's a great teaching point. I'm going to make a post about that. And I just make it. Gotcha. How did you learn how to do all this? Was it just trial and error and just kind of, like you said, maybe following, you know, influencers like Gary Vee and people like that. And just kind of, cause there's, there's a more of a pro cause I do some of this too, for our, like promoting our podcasts and things. And I, I feel like it's, there's more to it than people realize there's the hashtags, Ugh. the descriptions, the titles, the thumbnails, oh, there's all this stuff that goes into it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you learned that as well. Trial and error, man. I think you just, <laughs> um, you know, now I think the hashtag thing has evolved and they say they're just like bumper stickers now. Like they don't really on Instagram and I don't even think they suggest hashtags anymore, but um, yeah, I think you nailed it, man. I think it's trial and error. And then, you know, I've evolved to a place now where I have people helping me. So like, I'm still making all my content, but like for YouTube long form, I have editors edit that stuff. Um, cause I don't have time to do all that. And, but I'll tell you everything you see on shorts on Instagram and on TikTok is edited by either me or my assistant, Sam, who's sitting over here. Um, you know, we, we pretty much edit everything on InShot on an app on our phone. You can almost do literally, I feel like YouTube quality editing on some of the apps on your phone. And dude, because I enjoy tech, like I grew up in a tech world. My parents sold computers to medical offices when like in the eighties, they were automating practices back then. So I've always been into tech and I just like get on my phone and just like, Hey, let me watch a YouTube video on how to use this app. Like, how do you do it? How do you... And I just started emulating what other people were doing. And I still do that, dude. Like to this day, even the content that I make, it's all evolving. Like I'll see someone else do a style and I'm like, Ooh, I like that style, how they did that. And then I'll go try one, you know? So I'm still, I just kind of try to pay attention. Like Gary B says, he's like, don't talk right away. Listen, go listen, follow people that do what you do. Maybe follow 10 people on TikTok that are doctors and see what they're doing. And then once you sort of hear and see what they're doing, then start talking. And that's exactly what I did on TikTok. I just like scrolled for like a good week or two before I posted anything. And I was like, all right, I think I'm ready to start putting some content up. And I just started making stuff. Interesting. You know, you, you mentioned this a little bit that you have obviously some staff that, that help people that help you do this. I'm curious though, even still with support, like how it sounds like you still do a fair amount of this yourself. Do you just budget this into your schedule or I think I've seen another video you like where you're sitting right now, you've actually built a studio in your office, which is really cool. Yeah, uh, I should I'm, show you around. <laughs> I'm guessing, yeah. guess, how do you, how do you do all that? And in, in addition to, you know, surgery, seeing patients, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I God, everyone asked me this and I am like, I should let Sam come answer this. I she'll tell you, I, um, literally between, between patients, between cases, I'm constantly getting footage, coming up with ideas. The other thing that I do now too, is like with things like short form, like on TikTok or reels, I bank about 10, right? So like when I have some free time, I'll bank about 10 videos 
six or eight or 10 videos that I've saved to make reactions to and just put them on my drafts so that during the week I can just kick them out. And then every now and then, like between patients, I'll write a note, I'll see a consult, and then I'll have 20 minutes before a patient's going to show up. So I'll jump on my stories and go, hey, I put up a post last week and I, I saw there were five interesting questions. Let's answer those real quick. And I just do it between patients. So I really, honestly, it's become a lifestyle for me. I try so hard not to bring it home, but we all do to some extent. Uh, but I try to do all of my creation here. I obviously have to create some at home, um, but I have to tell you, it's it's doable. You just, if you don't enjoy it though, it will never happen. And so I would say there's one tip for your viewers here on how do I do it? I enjoy it. So I make it happen. If you're a person who's like, dude, I'm so scared to be on camera. Like, I just don't like to talk to the camera. It's not my thing. It's, it's not going to happen. And that's okay. It's not for you. But for me, I'm techie and I enjoy it. So I just literally go ham whenever I can. And I just like start making content. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that you're, you're starting a, a med spa as well. I'm, I'm curious about some of the entrepreneurial or business aspects of what you do, like how, how do you run your practice? You know, how, what, what types of other, you know, I, uh, where I grew up, I remember there was a plastic surgeon that did a similar type of thing. She had her practice and then she had like a med spa. And then I think she even, she built a restaurant attached to it and everything like, Oh, I think, that's awesome. I think that, you know, there's all these cool opportunities that people don't even realize that you, yeah. can, you can build off of your own medical training and expertise. Yeah. So man, I think when you get, first of all, running a practice is the hardest part in private practice, right? Like there's things that I'm not good at. So you have to hire people to help you do that. So I have a chief operating officer that's helping me kind of do that. And we're, we're going through a major overhaul in my practice right now, because over the first 10 to 12 years, I've gotten to hear it, but now I have the idea for this wellness center and a supplement company. And I have a media company now and all this. So we're trying to get from here to the next level. And so in that, sorry, in that little space of trying to like make this jump to the next level, it's chaos, right? Like you're trying to get the right people in the right places. You're trying to put protocols together, but you have to hire people to help you. When it comes to the other things, like you talked about the restaurant and all that, I think you just have to have vision and do what you're passionate about. And so one thing that I'm really passionate about is working out and being health, healthy. So because that's really important to me, um, I brought forth this whole idea of a wellness center in my practice where I realized that like someone came in for a tummy tuck and uh, this is not a fat versus a skinny issue, but you're 20 pounds overweight. You carry visceral fat inside around your organs that are pushing out on your belly. And we can go take off all your skin. But when I try to tighten up your stomach, you're still going to be super round. So I have that conversation with them and I go, listen, this is not you being overweight to where like, I can't give you a good result, but if you want the most optimal result, you still have weight to lose. And by the way, because I know that's really hard for a lot of people I have a mental health specialist in my practice now that helps them with all their body image stuff. So if someone, you know, through growing up, either kids were teasing them because they were fat or parents were weird about food and it gave them an aversion. I have a mental health specialist to help them work through that because I think sometimes that's the barrier to get to the weight loss phase. So then I have a, a macronutrient coach, I have a meal planning service, and I have someone to write workouts. So for me, because I'm passionate about health and wellness, I've now realized, hey, in my practice and what I do for a living, I have a whole host of patients who aren't ready for surgery that I could put through this side in the wellness center, change their lifestyle, 
have them learn how to eat better, have them learn how to lose weight, have them learn how to maintain a result after we do a tummy tuck, where if I can just funnel them through that process, then they come full circle to have surgery. Now they're going to maintain their result and live the rest of their life with all of the tools that they need to just look the way they want to look. So for me, it was, I, the lights went off one day and I was like, why don't I have a health and wellness center under one roof, helping all of my patients do this instead of shoving them out the door and telling them not ready for surgery. Why don't I provide those services for them? So that's kind of how that all came to fruition. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really like comprehensive care, if you will. That's, you know, not only just doing surgery, but like you said, surgery is only one part of it. There's, there's, you know, wellness, nutrition, all these other, you know, exercise that go into, you know, completing oh, yeah. a person's, you know, health and, and well-being and things. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, dude. I mean, I'm different. Like I told you, I'm, I'm different than most other plastic surgeons. I don't mean that I'm better and I'm, and I don't, I don't, I'm a pretty humble guy, but I realize that my take on surgery and plastic surgery is very different than a lot of plastic surgeons. Like I turn people down all the time because they're not good candidates because I refuse to accept 10 or 15 grand from someone when I know that they're not going to get a good result and they're not going to be happy. And if that patient isn't willing to engage in the process to change, to help me help them by changing their lifestyle, then I'm willing to let them go. And they're not the right patient for me, but not every surgeon in plastic surgery has that mentality. Like for me, I got to be able to put my head on the pillow every night and I got to feel good about what I'm doing for people. And while I do think that there is a place for cosmetic surgery and a lot of people do not, I know how it can benefit and help people but it's got to be done in the right manner or I won't do it. I'm curious, you know, all these other uh, endeavors that you're taking on, do you do these? You know, you said you usually try to finish your work by five. Is that somewhere fit in there or is this spill over into uh, your kind of after hours of the weekends where you're kind of planning these things and putting things in motion and that kind of thing? Oh, the businesses. Yeah. So, you know, I'm lucky to, to be in a place in my practice now where I have enough money coming in that I hired a chief operating officer and she's sort of like the brains behind building the infrastructure of all of these different companies and ideas that I have. So the nice thing is, is while I'm being a surgeon and being a doctor, she's sort of planning all of this stuff behind the scenes. And then she and I will have meetings here and there to try to sort of, you know, build all this out and get it going. So I have someone to help plan. There's no, there's no other way to do it. Like I could never do this alone. And so when you get to a place in your practice, hopefully all of you guys, you, you make enough money or take out a loan to get the right people hired to help you because you realize you can't do it all on your own. And if you want some of these dreams to come true, you got to get people to help you. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I want to, as we close out here, I kind of want to wind it back just a little bit for some of the med students in the audience. What's your, I try to ask a lot of guests this, like, what's your advice if they're trying to make a decision on their specialty. I'd be very curious what your thoughts are. Like, you know, maybe they're interested in plastic surgery, but they're like kind of starting third year rotations and they're still trying to navigate those waters. What's, what's kind of your advice for, for students in that position? Yeah. So from the wise position being 13 years deep, um, uh, number one, you have to love what you do. If, if, if you're going into a specialty for money, you are going to be sorely disappointed. You will be miserable one day because there's not enough money in the world that can create happiness. It does help and money is great. But if you're not passionate about what you do, you're going to fail. So the first thing I think people need to do is they need to figure out, are they a surgeon or are they not a surgeon? Do they like procedures like you do in radiology 
or do they want to be a primary care doc? So once you figure that out, the other important thing, and this is just real talk, okay? You, this is super important. And I've talked about this in, in several other podcasts. You have got to think about what you want your lifestyle to be like. You 100% need to understand that certain specialties will not bring you as much financial gain as others. And if money is important to you and being able to travel and live in like maybe a metropolitan city like Chicago, you need to be able to make more money. Will the specialty you're choosing lend you the ability to do that? So like if you're between family practice or something else that might bring you more money and you live in a big metropolitan area and you know that you like to travel and you want to live in a nice house, you do have to think about those things. Like lifestyle is super important. For me, what, what drove me to plastics initially, like we talked about, was that I loved the diversity of the field and I am a surgeon. I like to operate. Now, why did I choose plastic surgery? I liked the ability to control my schedule. I liked the ability to not have to take call if I don't want to take call. If I was in general surgery, I would have to be taking call. There's just no way around it. So I think you do really need to consider, try to fast forward and look 10 to 15 down, years down the road and think about what you want your life to look like. And will the specialty that you're going into give you the opportunity to become that that person in that life. And so that's really important. And so this is never me telling you to pick a specialty because of money. First, pick what you love, then look at what you want your life to look like and make sure what you love is really going to give you that lifestyle. I think that's excellent advice. I mean, I think a lot of people get in kind of caught up in some of the nuances and they don't think about, as I try to tell students that ask me the same thing, like really try to picture what you want out of your medical career? Do you, you know, do you want longevity, longevity of, you know, patient care, like in primary care, or do you, you know, do you more like, cause it's, you know, saying you're a doctor is a very broad term. I mean, a pathologist is very different than like a neurosurgeon or a plastic surgeon, you know? So it's, I think figuring out, you know, what fits your personality and what you like, like for me, I like quick visits. I like, I don't, I don't like talking. I like talking to patients, but I don't like talking to them for an hour, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And I like doing procedures. I like the quick gratification of some of them. Um, and so I, you know, I like anatomy. I like imaging. I like integrating that in. I like being a consult, you know, versus, you know, a lot of those versus a primary. I did, oh, yeah. I, did I did a whole year of general medicine as my engineer. I, I do not like being the, <laughs> the primary team. So I, you figure these, th I, I think it's very good advice to like kind of figure out what fits you and what you like. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to kind of envision that five, 10 years down the road thing. But like, if people can do that, I think it'd be really important to, to, to run through that exercise. Like, you know, try to like envision in your mind, like, are you driving five minutes to work? Or are you driving an hour to work? Are you, you know, like if kids are important to you, do you want to spend an hour driving one way and an hour back, you know, or not? Like you really have to think about those kinds of things because it's super important. Cause as you know, right, like being a resident takes its toll on relationships and, and being, being a doctor, who's going to be on call and always, you know, be on the hook, like what's that going to do to your relationship, you know, and, 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 you know, how's that going to be? So I think you have to think about the, the global aspects, but at the root of everything, man, we all just want to help people, right? Like I, I still help people and I, and I love it and I enjoy it, but the lifestyle was important to me, like being, being available to hang out with my kids and being home at a reasonable hour to see my wife was really, really important to me. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, having that balance is, is, is really important for sure. I, I'm curious, what's your advice for surgery residents that are thinking about doing plastic surgery? Like, you know, should they do research? Like, how should they get exposures to the field? Which, what type of things, you know, they're, they're a surgeon, but maybe they haven't obviously made that commitment yet to 
plastics yet what's kind of should be their mindset in that in that sense you think yeah man i like a lot of it's so crazy i'll get like 15 year old high school kids like messaging me like <laughs> hey i want to be a plastic surgeon like so what do i have to do to become a plastic surgeon i'm like well first you got to make good grades and get into med school <laughs> you have plenty of time to figure out plastic surgery so but for the resident i would say first as as a med student you have to decide am i going into surgery right um, and if you don't have any particular pull to surgery, like I did not, um, I chose general surgery. And so in the middle of general surgery, you rotate through orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, vascular surgery, plastic surgery, you go through everything. Right. So for me, um, it just plastics is what grabbed me. Right. Like I loved general surgery. I loved trauma surgery. It was so fun. But as I started to get exposed to all these different specialties, I really think that as a resident, it, it'll speak to you. It's you're, you're going to know what you need to do. You're going to know what you want to do to get into plastics. There is no magic. There's no magic track. Um, I think you just have to grind. You have to meet the right people. You have to seek out being in front of other plastic surgeons, right? Like when I was in general surgery, I was in Dr. Tom Musto's lab, who was the chairman of plastic surgery at Northwestern, the, one of the top wound healing, you know, labs in the country. I spent a year in his lab. I was like, I'm going to write some papers for this guy. Cause I know he could probably help me out when I want to be, a, when I want to be a plastic surgeon. So I think putting yourself into situations by you doing for other people and not expecting anything back, but hoping that maybe they can help you when it's time. Like you got to try to put yourself into those scenarios. That's important. That's interesting. Yeah, no, that's a, it seems that's a recurring theme in our conversation. It's, you know, like you reached out to those people in med school and then you know, once again, you're doing it in residency as well. <laughs> yeah, dude. And look at any time along the way in any of those times that I did that, I could have failed miserably. I didn't, but I could have, and I had to be ready to accept failure and what I was going to do if I did fail, you know? So like, um, you know, look, when I went to leave general surgery to do research at Northwestern, my chairman was very reluctant to let me leave Mount Sinai to go over there. Cause he was afraid I was going to leave. And I did, and I did because um, it made better sense for my career and what I wanted to do. It was nothing personal against our, our trauma program, but for me, it worked out. But if he had not let me go over there, I may not be sitting here today. Wow. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> so while it ended up, I didn't screw my program over. I never said I wasn't going to leave, but he allowed me to go do research. And in doing that, I realized that if I wanted to get into plastic surgery, I needed to kind of follow some things pedigree wise to get me there. And, and that's just how it worked out for me personally. Sure. Yeah, no. And I think it's another part of success. It sounds like is capitalizing on opportunities when they present themselves. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm curious, what's your thoughts on, you know, since you did it the traditional way or the old way of, you know, that for, that was the way for the longest period of time going, doing general surgery, doing some re doing, you know, one or two years of research and then doing a fellowship versus these integrated programs for where you match right out of medical school. I'm kind of interested on your thoughts on that. And do you think, do you think someone can determine from their med school rotations that they can be a plastic sur that that plastic surgery is the right field? I'm curious what your thoughts are on that as yeah, well. I think you can. I, I, I think if, if you're a proactive medical student and you get yourself into scenarios where you're around plastics a lot and, and you really like, you know, it's some of these high hitting academic institutions, right? Like you're exposed to all the cool reconstructive stuff. 
So I think if you're a med student and you're just a little bit pushy and getting yourself in front of plastic surgery, I definitely think that you could know from the beginning, I, the wrong thing is to think that you're just going to get out in plastics and make millions of dollars. Cause it's just not what happens. Like, it's just not the way it's just not the way it is. I'm telling you guys, we do better than most, but it is not like, you know, you're not just printing cash. So I think that if you realize that you're you're, you're in med school and you're kind of seeing all this plastic stuff and it resonates with you and it's cool. Yeah. You could do it. Integrated pro programs are, it's weird for me. Right. Cause I've only done general surgery. And then I did a two-year fellowship in plastics and the three and three thing where you do three of general and then three of plastics, those guys come out well-trained. I mean, I, I really think they do come out well-trained. I feel like I got a better training experience because I did trauma and, you know, being in the belly for trauma night after night and putting in central lines and managing vents and being in the unit and taking care of sick people, it made me a bit fearless when I got into plastic surgery, like always a healthy respect for medicine. But like, I felt like if something happened on the table, I could handle it. I don't know that in a three and a three program that you truly get that kind of exposure, um, nor do I really feel that it's absolutely necessary, but that was just my journey. Um, so I think those guys still get really good training, but I got very different training. Like I got heavy trauma, critical care training. Plus I got to do plastics. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, my last question, I ask every guest this, and I think you, you talked a little bit about this already, but what, what do you do to balance, balance your life? Maybe kind of, I think you hit on it in different points, but me sum it up all ours. How, how do you get that? that balance yeah. in your life. <laughs> yeah. So to sum it up for me is, um, activity, man. I love to be outside. That's why I love Arizona. So I like to hike. I I'm a CrossFitter. I like to lift weights and, you know, do all that stuff. Um, I like, I play some golf. I don't play as much because my kids, you know, when they were younger, didn't play, but now they're starting to play. So I, my goal is just to spend as much time as I can with my wife, Alexis and my boys, Brody and Graham. So a lot of outdoor stuff. We like to travel. We like sampling cuisine. Um, and that's really kind of most of my out, outside life is like when I'm not here, it's with my kids, man. Like I'm not a big drinker. I don't really drink anymore. Like I'm past that in my life. I'm 51. Um, I like to work out. So I don't like being hung over. I got kids jumping all over me in the morning who want to play. Like I can't be hung over. So I'm not really a drinker anymore. Um, my life now is like, I'm a family guy. Like we, we hike together and we just like to be outdoors and just do fun stuff. So we're big outdoorsy people. That's really cool. You know, I'm a, yeah. a big golfer myself. So I've, I've actually played out in Scottsdale. I've played the, the TPC course out there yeah. with the, where they play Beautiful, the Phoenix. Right? Yeah. It's gorgeous. I think isn't there, there's, there's like, oh, I forget, there's some ridiculous amount of golf courses in that area. Right. <laughs> oh yeah. Dude, the first purse per capita out here, the golf courses are insane. And like, so I, my boys, my boys are born. I kind of stopped playing because I was new into practice and at Georgia is when I started playing. I didn't start playing. till I was at Georgia and man, I got to where I was about a 12 when I left Georgia oh, wow. handicap. Like I was, I was playing pretty good golf, but I was playing all the time. Right. So then med school, you know, kind of tanks. <laughs> and then like I had my kids and I kind of stopped playing. Well, fast forward my kids when they were like four or five, my, my son Brody picked up like a little plastic golf club and just hit one square while I was like videoing him with my phone and the ball was coming right at me. And I like looked over the side and his eyes like lit up. So I was like, Oh man. Okay. Like they like swing it. So they started like watching the masters with me and they were like emulating swings. And so we started to get my boys into golf and now like they love golf. And so I got to start playing more. I just, I haven't 
because they've been kind of growing up. And now that they're older, like they can hit the ball, man. It's, it's insane. Like they, and they don't hardly ever play, but whenever they do go play, it's like they never left. So it's time for me to start playing, man. I would love to get down to Augusta one day and play that course. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that that's the dream, dream right there. <laughs> I got a buddy who I have a couple of friends who've played it. Oh really? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Georgia, one of my buddies is from Augusta and he got to play it. Um, but golf is a great sport, man. I, it's frustrating as hell, but I enjoy it. Oh yeah. It's, it's very frustrating, but it, it, you know, it's funny. I, I played more competitively growing up, but now it's more, it's a way to get away from it all. Like it's a, almost like a decompression, if you will. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'll tell you some of my funnest pre-med moments were, um, at Georgia when I decided to go pre-med, um, I went straight through summers, two summers in a row of flanks. I went summer, full year, summer. And, uh, I got a membership to the golf course, which it's a Robert Trent Jones design course. Sure. So it's beautiful course. And it was like 150 bucks a quarter unlimited golf. Right. Wow. So I would study. And then like, after studying for like four or five hours, like around 5 PM, I just roll out to the golf course. You don't even need a tee time. If you're a member, you just go up to the first tee and I'd go walk nine and the sun setting and it's beautiful out, you know, right? Like, you know, that, oh, yeah. that peaceful moment on the course where you're carrying your bag, you walk to your ball, you hit it, you go to the green, you putt, you go play, you know, and you walk nine in like an hour, right. Or less. Um, and those are some of like my greatest memories ever as far as playing golf, because I just remember like that golf course being so beautiful and just having moments of serenity where I was like, if it all ended right here, this is a pretty sweet place, you know? That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I echo those sentiments, you know, uh, walking those nines late at night. I've definitely done that for sure. That's awesome. It's fun. <laughs> it's just so hard today, right? With public courses, like it's like, you know, a five hour round. Like I just, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely a, a time consuming thing. And especially here in Atlanta, a lot of the good courses are kind of up north and like outside the city. So it's, it can be a little bit of a, a haul to get to some of them, but I try yeah. to make it happen. Cause it's, I just enjoy it too much. <laughs> well, dude, we'll have to, uh, when I get home to Atlanta, my parents still live in Buckhead. We'll have to try to hook up and play some golf sometime. That'd be awesome. I'd enjoy yeah. that. Well, Dr. Brown won't be very good, but <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Um, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for uh, giving us generously giving us your time and telling us your story and your insights. Uh, I think the listeners will definitely gain a lot. I've learned a lot as well. I guess closing out, where can people find you? You know, your website, social media, YouTube, all that stuff. Yeah, let me hit up all the platforms. Um, by the way, you guys can DM me anytime on Instagram. I try to answer them all. So my Instagram is at dr Richard J Brown. I'm sure you'll put all this stuff in there. Um, mm -hmm. TikTok is at the real TikTok doc. You can get me there. Um, and then, uh, let's see, man, I got Facebook going now too. I think it's just Ricky Brown. Cause now you can put reels up there, but then YouTube is Dr. Ricky, but it's D O C T O R Ricky. So Dr. Ricky is my YouTube channel. Those are probably my three main TikTok, Instagram and YouTube. So hit me up there. Let me know what kind of videos you guys want to see. DM me anytime if you have questions and I'll, and I'll try to answer you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, man. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology, and they're available as month-to-month -month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, 
and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as ebooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience of allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down. On our website, we also provide a free clinical cases video series called Da Vinci Cases. Da Vinci Cases aims to help you learn how to answer USMLE questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions. Our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems, and they're updated frequently with new cases. And then lastly on our website, you can find our blog, which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.